Welcome to Data Dialogues. Each Data Dialogue is a three-part conversation. The first two segments individually highlight a person working with environmental data that acts as a starting place for our group conversation with both guests. By talking through who's using what kinds of data and how, we're working to personalize the landscape that environmental data is sitting in so that it can be more accessible and useful to everyone. I'm your host, Angela Eaton. We're about to talk with Soph Petrus. Soph is an environmental educator and organizer at Future Coalition with a background in fossil fuel divestment campaigns and passion for building community with youth power towards liberation. She is committed to serving and centering communities of the global majority at all of their intersections and is animated by coaching and supporting young people and their radical visioning towards a world beyond extraction. Hey, Soph. Hi. Hi. Soph, I'm so excited to be here with you today. I am as well. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course. So a question that we're asking everyone, environmental data is an on-screen activity for most of us, but it really is linked to something that we experience outdoors oftentimes. And so I'm wondering, what is that link for you? Where do you enjoy spending your outdoor time? Yeah, so I just moved um, originally from the East Coast and spent a few years abroad down in South America. And this past year kind of landed in the Pacific Northwest, um, more specifically in Skagit County in Western Washington, which has been an awesome place to have as a background and respite because I am also on Zoom a lot these days. But I think a special and particular place where I spent a lot of time this summer, um, a town called Index in the Cascade Mountains um, on the homelands of the Coast Salish, Tulalip and Skykomish peoples. And just this tiny blip of a town, um, you'd blink and you'd miss it. And super small, but has the Skykomish River running through it and just these walls of massive granite um, like in the forest. And so it just feels really lush, like teeming with life, um, obviously going for the rock climbing, which is just world class, but really special, like dense forest, but just being there and seeing all this wildlife and moss and green light, um, just really a magical place. I'm so envious. We're having a drought right now. I'm uh, located in the Bay Area, the home of the Rometouche, and uh, it it is very dry. So that that's a wonderful place to be and imagine. So I am wondering now what brought you to your work. We talked about uh, the Future Coalition in your um, intro bio, but I'm, you know, tell me a little bit about that and what does it mean to you and what brought you there? Yeah, that's a really good question. So Future Coalition is, we are a nonprofit kind of built by youth activists for youth activists. Um, so it's a national network that fosters community um, and collaboration. Um, amongst youth leaders and youth-led organizations across the country that are tackling different challenges um, at the grassroots level. So there are some folks on the team that are focusing on voting rights and enfranchisement. I specifically work on the climate team and really just thinking how, and particularly thinking about climate finance. So what's that connection between climate change, um, money, the powers that be, and how to demystify some of that um, data and information for young people to take action in their communities. So I'm working on a current climate project campaigning, kind of skilling up young people, but also bringing them into decision-making spaces. I work doing research and like organizing support. So I'm just kind of the person in 
young people's corner, trying to make sense of a lot of this information and data, make those linkages really clear, um, and essentially trying to answer the question, what are the things that young people need to realize their power and like take action in their communities? What are the things that are in their way and how can we address that? And how do we build youth leadership in the climate movement with a focus um, on under-resourced youth? So were, did you consider yourself a youth activist before you took on this role? Um, I think other people considered me a youth activist. I definitely, I grew up around um, kind of like in a household and in like a community that was where I saw like taking direct action, going to protest, go to a rally, writing your representative as like the logical step if you saw a problem or a challenge. And so I don't think I necessarily saw myself that way initially until I did get to college and began to organize with my university's fossil fuel divestment movement, um, as well as a few other on-campus programs where I think my identity got really wrapped up, not just in organizing, but organizing as a student. I'm constantly telling college organizers that they have a really unique power that only lasts four to six years in their capacity as students. So that's the group that that's the group that you're working with. Like, is it an age range or is it more of a time of life? Yeah, it's it's definitely more of an age range. I think we're typically defining youth as like 14 to 29. I primarily support folks that are college aged. So whether they're on campus not in school or in community kind of in transition. That's the bulk of the students that I and young people that I'm working with. But I also have coaching calls with 15 year olds, which is pretty cool. That is super cool. I, I'm wondering what, um, where is the group that you're working with? Where are they getting their information or where do you find uh, you can connect best with them in terms of, you know, helping them with the knowledge acquisition that they need to have around these issues? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's a mix. Definitely, there's some research that's like original that I'm working on. A lot of it is taking research from partners at Rainforest Action Network, Sierra Club, Oil Change International, Bank Track, who are doing a lot of this kind of high level like work tracking banks and corporations and their environmental impact globally and taking a lot of the raw data or reports that they've worked on, which are incredible and really rich and a huge resource to so many of us that are doing environmental campaigning, particularly corporate campaigning. So being able to say, what is the environmental impact or like the scope three emissions of JP Morgan Chase's investment profile or like, what is the impact of Procter and Gamble, like in rainforests, like being able to take that. But those are still largely, that's hard if you're 15, 16 to digest that information how do you turn that into action? How do you make some of these connections? So a lot of the research I'm doing is trying to transform that data, which might just be like a raw set from a Bloomberg terminal. And how do you turn that into a meaningful resource um, for young people to engage and make it feel both immediately relevant, as well as sometimes finding answers to specific organizing questions. So are you training other people to do this part of the work? Or are you doing this part of the work and then helping people disseminate the information or do what they need to do with that information once the information is collected? Yeah, that's a good question. We're definitely in the frame of building the ship as we fly it. So sometimes what my role is, it's changing. Um, 
as it goes. A lot of the time it's delivering these resources and doing research. So then it can be in the hands of youth organizers who can then use it to make strategic decisions about their local campaigns. So let's break that down. What does that actually look like in your day to day? Yeah, a lot of things, they'll be big. I think we've transitioned to a lot of things on Zoom, like larger report cards um, or like sector analyses that different like research groups or that do kind of in the climate finance sphere will likely be collecting this research on their own and then have like kind of the announcement or like the launch webinar, like hey, everyone, our 2021 report is kind of up to date. We're going to have this event, all the partner organizations, those who endorsed it, those who are committed to kind of pushing it out and amplifying it, um, as well as making it digestible to other people will join and kind of get a walkthrough on the methodology, on how data was collected, implications of this research. I'm thinking of later next week, we have an insurance scorecard, um, like how are US insurers doing on climate? And we're going to have a call next week. And we'll actually get to hear about the methodology from those researchers. So then we can all go to grassroots organize and be like, hey, we have this awesome new research and data on U.S. insurance companies and their role in the climate crisis and specific projects. And now we've all kind of been trained of how to talk about this data and how to make it meaningful. And folks can go back to the original source, but often grassroots campaigners are quite busy. Um, so how do you pull out the most important pieces? How do you get folks to train on this. A lot of the training work that we do is definitely around the basics of climate finance. Like for young people, it's a very different audience. Needing to explain what's a bank? What's an asset manager? Right. What's the difference between BlackRock and Vanguard and the state pension fund and a bank like Chase? How do they work? What's an endowment? So a lot of that sometimes is just coaching and training of what are these systems? What are the pillars of support that particularly we're thinking about fossil fuels? enjoy from banks, from the government, the public sector, and then being able to train other young people, not only on what that looks like, but also our campaign strategies. So there is a lot of train the trainer for young people as well. Wow. So, okay. That is a lot of um, interaction and it seems like community building and coalition building along a lot of different lines. I'm interested in what you're thinking about next. Yeah. A big question that I have is like beyond organizers, beyond like young people who I think are increasingly, I think youth organizers, particularly climate organizers are seeing this wave of inaction and the climate crisis like only deepen and grow more dire. Like I think there is this intensity and like or intensification of like young climate organizers who I think are growing more desperate. And I, as an organizer, I think I even a few years ago, had a different approach than I do now. It just feels very immediate, and there have been some really high-profile letdowns. And so I think the big question I have now is, like, what piece of information is it going to take to unlock this, like, group of people who have yet to really be agitated around climate? I'm thinking about what's the piece, what piece of information do they need to unlock the potential to organize around this and call for change at a grassroots level. Like we see folks who are really committed, like core organizers, and they're growing and they're young people who are responding to the intensity of the moment. I'm wondering, folks who are active or even passive in their support for the movement, um, get what it's going to take for them to change and really engage. Um, so I'm thinking less about folks who are really opposed to what we're doing uh, that's definitely a conversation that needs to be had. But I think the con 
what's more exciting to me is folks that haven't yet taken action, what is it going to take? And what's that piece of information that they need to realize that they, as an individual, can contribute and take like collective action and what it's going to take to kind of mobilize for that next step to go from that, oh, this is really a shame, isn't it? To, I can do something about it and people in my community can actually respond. You know, obviously being a climate organizer is not about being in college or having that privilege, but a lot of times you don't have the time to be a climate organizer if you're not in a study space because yeah. you have to work or you're, you know, maybe you have a family or you you have other obligations and climate is top of mind, but it doesn't mean that you have extra time to do the organizing around it. So I'm, I think about how much being a college student and being an activist, being able to do the work are tied together and how, like what, what would be ways to your question about like, how do you act, you know, make active people who agree with you, but aren't active? How do you enfranchise people who um, don't have the privilege of being in a space where they can do this work and think about it because they've got the time in their lives, like the physical space to be able to do it. Yeah, that's huge. And I think it's something that we go, are thinking about in my organization as we're trying to respond to. And I think this challenge too, is there's a lot of focus on students and young people and focus on like campus organizing that just has a specific power and pull. And even my experience, but there's lots of people who don't have that and how different it is if you don't go to a residential university where most students are commuters or they're working more, how different campus organizing looks like. And I think something that we're trying to do is like res to respond to that as well. Um, high school, college age, whether or not folks are enrolled in institutions of higher learning is compensating youth activists for their organizing perspective. And this has been something that the, I think the youth climate movement has really struggled with. But getting money into the hands of like youth organizers, like for their organizing, isn't about like commodifying the movement or like it, I think it's about in making an investment in young people and like the vision and like the lived experience they have. And particularly like black, indigenous, like other racialized young people, young people living in rural and frontline communities often, they have the analysis and like the lived experience that the climate justice movement needs to be led with. Um, but they're also the most likely to face economic instability. And so when we fail to compensate youth organizers, uh, we create a movement that's really dominated by the voices and perspectives of those people who have access to more wealth, more power. It fails to center the most marginalized. And I think if we're really serious about climate justice, we have to get really serious about investing in like young people and like the vision they have for a future and not seeing it as like, oh, well now we're paying them for their ideas. Well, first of all, they have really great ideas. So we probably should pay them for their ideas. But it's about making sure that the, someone's not making that trade-off. This is what they really care about. So like, I care about making my community livable and like in organizing for that future. But I have to choose between that and my work study job. And like, I can't do this unpaid. A lot of my job is like, can I, can we get you funding? And I think this is something that the youth climate movement has really struggled with and faced a lot of critique in recent years. And I think rightfully so that it is kind of predominated by the voices of largely middle-class and largely white young people who do have the resources and the time and the connections as well 
to make this like an after-school hobby. But I think there's also, we don't think of young people as well. I think society and collectively, sometimes as thought partners that who need to be compensated because they're just kids. And I think also that we adultify youth climate leaders, particularly youth that live in frontline communities and just make them really lose a childhood experience as they're needing to fight, you know, in halls of government or power for clean water or clean air. We also kind of infantilize them at the same time and say that their ideas aren't good enough or they don't. And the best ideas, this I think some of the climate movement has had has come from young people. And so really taking that seriously and thinking what young people aren't we hearing from and why and taking steps to address that in small ways. I know we're not doing it perfectly. I know there's ways we could be doing it better. Um, but I think continuing with that vision and making sure to get like resources into the hands of the people we want to hear from. I also know it's a huge privilege to organize as a job as well. And so I feel really lucky. And it's something that I didn't know was possible when I was in college. I was organizing as a student and kind of fitting work study around it and thought, okay, I'm probably not going to do a lot of organizing outside of it or I'm going to be very tired. And so I feel really lucky that I'm in a place where I can, I'm paid all day to like agitate these types of questions. So your dialogue partner will be Muki Haklai. Muki is interested in environmental information and public access use and creation. He's a professor in the Department of Geography at the University College London and co-founded Mapping for Change in the Extreme Citizen Science Research Center. Those are both umbrella organizations that do community-led environmental sensing, mapping, and data gathering. So, considering all of that, do you have a sparking thought for Muki? Yeah, that, well, I can't wait to talk to them. But I think I'm really curious to hear how kind of community collection of data actually transfers to kind of a community understanding, processing, and reacting to that data and what work is being done to break down and kind of demystify some arguably what can be really dense and difficult to understand and make sure that that very same community and the people around them can tap into it, truly understand it, and feel empowered by contributing to that project. We're going to have a good time. Uh, I can't wait for that either. Uh, So thanks very much. It's really nice to talk to you today. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you today as well. Um, This was a blast. Looking forward to our dialogue. Can't wait. This segment is one of a three-part conversation series. To listen to Muki Haklai's individual conversation with me, or to hear our group dialogue with Sof and Muki, please visit us wherever you listen to your podcasts or at openenvironmentaldata.org. To read a transcript of this episode and to access resources mentioned throughout the show, please take a look at our show notes, which you can find in the caption for this episode or at openenvironmentaldata.org. This podcast was created by Emma Grimm, Angela Eaton, Michelle Cherupka, Shannon Dosmegan, Amelia Williams, and Katie Hoberling. With music by The Westerlies. Data Dialogues is supported by the Open Environmental Data Project, which is funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation.